This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I just tell you that's one of my favorite videos. Uh, <laughs> a little dance move. There you go. I, I did not see that one coming. That's not where I thought this was going. Okay. Right. Anyway, there we go. Um, well, back here at Bloomberg, uh, where so money. So we count on you to keep us on track. Where money and art collide. That is where. Bloomberg clients really live. I mean, yes. this is a story tailor made uh, for everything Bloomberg, and so we have two great experts here to talk with us about. We're talking, of course, about Sotheby's getting bought two point seven billion dollars by a billionaire. So let's break it down. Devin Pendleton is a wealth reporter here at Bloomberg. Katya Kazakina, she's been a frequent guest of late. There's been a lot going on in your world, so we're excited to have her back. They're both here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Devin, I, I want to start with you because. This is this is sort of a big deal in the world of the super rich, right? I mean, this is this is the thing you would love to own. Absolutely. I mean, it is the trophy asset. It's the trophy asset that's responsible for moving all these other trophy assets, meaning art. So it's kind of an ultimate prize. And so, Katja, remind me why we care so much about Sotheby's. I mean, this is where, you know... You spend a lot of time there, I would imagine. I do. And uh, so do a lot of our clients. But You were shocked, right? I was so shocked. I cannot even tell you. Even though I did hear rumors in the past month, there were some talk about possibly this some kind of a private deal happening. But it's so hard to imagine, you know? And so um, I was at a source meeting and we both just gasped, you know, seriously. And so why is it a big deal? Because Sotheby's is a public auction house. It's the only one large, it's a lar- one of the two largest auction houses in the world and it's American and it's public. So we use it almost like as a bellwether. I mean, I, we look at earnings, you know, we glean intelligence yeah. from what they report sometimes, uh, you know, daily, you know, about their margins, about their strategy, about executive compensation, about market trends, about loans, about so many things. So it was, um, and, and so the market really relies on that because that's our only way because the art market is very opaque. But it was also this transparency was a disadvantage competitively uh, compared to Christie's, which is private company. They don't have to tell whether they lose money or they make money. They don't tell us really anything except for their, you know, annual sales and you know all these details are kept very much under the radar. Well, so, Devin, come back in on, though, and I'm trying to make sense of, like, it's amazing, right? You said that this is a company that has been so important to us to have an idea of the art market, uh, Katya. Devin, for this individual, um, Patrick Drahi, why did he do it? It's a great question. Um, he is known for making really bold deals. It's kind of how he built his fortune. He came from relative obscurity about five years ago. Um, he took this company, which invests in cable, media, telecom assets, private. All of a sudden, not a lot of people had heard from him. Kind of overnight, he was a billionaire. And he wasn't known for as a big art collector. I mean, a lot of the big art collectors are constantly at the auctions. They have museums. You hear about the pieces they're buying. Um, Not a lot of detail there about his interest in art. So why would he want it? Well, he has a very... um, His 
Fortune is very closely tied right now to Altice, to this these publicly traded um, cable and satellite companies he owns. Um, it's a great way to diversify. Um, he has the cash. He's worth $8.6 billion. It's an incredible platform for him as a family, as a global investor. Um, it's a big prize. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, picking up on what Devin was talking about, you know, we hear names like Stevie Cohen. Yeah. We hear about Leon Black. We hear about a lot of big... Francois Pinot, who exactly. owns Christie's. Right. So you went exactly where I, where I wanted to go, which is you now have these two big brand names in French hands. Is that notable? Like, what, what does that mean? And what is it that these two particular uh, French guys have this in their respective portfolios? Well, Pinot has several major museums in his portfolio that are trend-setting, market-setting. Mm-hmm. You know, Drahi is is less known. We really don't know much about him. You know, Sotheby's did, would not reveal what he collects. I hear from my sources that it might be impressionist, surrealist work, but, you know, it's not, like, he's not on among the top 200 collectors, right. you know, that we hear about. And that's about. a pretty wide description of what he may have, right? Even so, yeah. right? Yeah. We have really no idea. And so, uh, but ultimately, Sotheby's is, is this brand that resonates so far and so much, and it had attracted people like Dan Lowe because mm-hmm. even a small investment, not to say that this is, but a small investment in Sotheby's, the, the branding that, you know, people get a lot out of it. So what's this going to mean for the art market? It's really a big deal, I have to tell you. I mean, one of my sources said that all this transparency that we had through Sotheby's, like it's all going underground now, yeah. essentially. Right. But I just and think if I'm a collector, right? Like, what does it mean for me? I mean, Christie's has been private, but I, what does so it mean for me? Yeah. So, for example, Sotheby's has hasn't been able to maybe offer, in some cases, very aggressive deals to sellers. So, in you know, it could be a really good situation for sellers, right? Because now oh. Christie's, you know, on the guarantees, yeah. on the terms, Sotheby's was really at a disadvantage to, dis- to because negotiate they public, because they had to show they everything. They were a public company. Well, now they can really pull out all the stops, and, and it, could be very, it could be very interesting. Uh, and, it's, you know, we, we don't know whether it was a myth that Sotheby's had been at a disadvantage or if it's yeah. a real thing. So now, right. you know, it's going to be the, pl- the, the field will be even. Is Jahi done buying? <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, he's 55 years old Young. and he's just worth scads of money. I can't imagine. And you do wonder whether this, you know, to your point earlier about his now competitor, whether this becomes almost sort of a platform exercise for him across yeah. uh, the art world. Devin Pendleton, wealth hmm. reporter for Bloomberg. Cool Katja Kazakina, art market reporter. She's going to continue to be very busy putting all those reporting skills to work now that Sotheby's is going to be privately held. Thank you both and so much. Makes sense. Sotheby's shares because of this offer up 58% in today's session. And it's been a stock that I think has been having a hard time uh, moving. So uh, no surprise to see uh, that. And this is what we want to know. That's outstanding. I know. It's fabulous. Thank you, Paul Brennan, our producer. So we do wonder, do we get a dovish Fed come Wednesday? Uh, Everybody's wondering what happens at 2.01 p.m. in Washington on Wednesday. And what does the Fed do? What do they say? What does the chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, say? What happens in the bond market? Just some of what our next guest needs to think about. Yeah, we're going to throw those questions to our next guest. Mac Lloyd is chief investment strategist of AAM Advisors Asset Management. Uh, He is 
on the phone from Colorado. So, Matt, uh, I do think this is a funny week, a funny Fed meeting, uh, but everybody's going to be glued to it. We'll be covering it live here, of course, at Bloomberg. What is it that you expect and what do you want to know? Well, thanks for having me. I think first and foremost, someone's humor is someone else's agony sometimes in in Wall Street. So uh, I think the bond bears and bulls are fighting it out. But I think when you look at it, this is going to be one of the first times where the actions may not mean as much as what the words are. I actually, even with about a 20% rate cut possibility this week, I think you're probably looking more that they're probably in tune to more maybe July, maybe even September. I know that seems a little bit more uh, hawkish than what uh, the bond bulls want. But I think the actions are going to be very interesting in the sense versus the words. The words are going to temper a little bit more so of the move. So my guess is if they cut rates, they're going to be more hawkish. If they don't cut rates, they're going to be more dovish and try to counteract that and keep some flexibility and also to remove some of the politicization politicization of what's gone on with the Federal Reserve uh, with the current administration. But I think as a whole, the markets right now are just in idle mode right now, waiting for that action. And then I think there might be a buy in the rumor, sell in the news event, whatever happens, whether it's a rate cut or not. And so, Matt, you know, you mentioned the words that Jay Powell is going to say. I feel like we're starting to understand the rhythms and maybe some of the choices that he makes rhetorically, as it were. What do you think are the words that people are going to be especially listening for to get really into the Kremlinology of Fed speak here? Yeah, I think the, I think it kind of stems a little bit. I don't know if there's going to be any kind of clue to that except for the more dovishness or the hawkishness. I think not so much really words, but tone is going mm-hmm. to be really the, the most important aspect to this. How much they drive the dovish or the hawkish note away from the action that they, they – partake in. I think that's kind of what you're really looking at. I almost think any more, and I do give Powell credit. He's been, I think, a lot more, I want to say transparent, but clear than what we've had in the past yeah. as far as the Fair. Reserve Chairman. But I do think that I, I almost kind of envy the days when we had the briefcase indicator with Alan Greenspan. Right. Um, that almost seemed to be a little bit more uh, uh, fluid and, and clear sometimes than what we get back from the press conferences. But I think overall tone is going to be the biggest thing. Do you think he's feeling pressure from the president? You know, I think that's the, I think that's a natural reaction in the sense to, to to come to that conclusion. But I don't get that sense from him. I get him that he's actually okay with that that perception. I think it allows him a little bit more to kind of put a stamp on it and to be a little bit more. I do think that the president has actually he's covering his bases. Whether it's tweeting that you know we should be cutting 100 basis points like he did about a month ago, which no one in the street is really thinking that way. But that's not mm-hmm. who he's tweeting for. That's not who he's communicating with. I think most people are taking policy. You know what? He's a lot more lucid in his judgment. Uh, and I think that's why I think the market's gotten a little bit ahead of itself with the 208 on the 10-year. It's gotten a little bit ahead of itself as far as what the economic numbers are saying. And it's almost a bullying-type move right now by the, the, the basically people that are purchasing treasuries right now, trying to bully the Fed into it. Um, I think as a whole it probably is going to be more in tune that they're going to be a lot more independent than people think. And I get that impression from Powell. Maybe that's a little bit contrarian, but I get the feeling he's a little bit more independent than what people might think he is. And Matt, just about 30 seconds left, but if you're at the Fed, which we know from what Chair Powell said is, quote, data dependent, what's the data point that you are focused the most on that you think is the most important as they make this consideration? 
I think there are several metrics that I look at particularly, and I think they're micromanaging rates kind of like they did in 98. But in 98, you had long-term capital management. Yeah. You had the tight bot group in the Russian ruble crisis. Here you have what's going on with the tensions, with trade, geopolitical events, and also kind of a, the proliferation of media. So I think when you look at it, there's a lot more of saying that this is a 98 versus uh, what's happening now. And I think you're going to look at sentiment. You're going to look at, you know, jobless claims. And I think you're also going to look at kind of housing and so forth and what that oscillates and what that has to do with rates. But those are the three sectors I would look at more predominantly to see is this spiraling, is this steady growth, or is it maybe accelerating? All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Matt Lloyd, Chief Investment Strategist at Advisors Asset Management. Uh, Matt joining us on the phone from Colorado. Well, Carol, I think many of us have really been captivated by the pictures and the stories Mm -hmm. coming out of Hong Kong, these protests, literally millions of people uh, in the streets. And I have to say, I'm having a hard time getting my arms around what it all means. Right. Fortunately for us, Andy Brown is here, a regular guest on this program. He's editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, but maybe more important for us, knows this city intimately and knows what a different sort of place it is. So give us some backstory here. I mean, remind all of us what Hong Kong is, because it's not like we we sort of lump it in with other cities, but it's a different sort of place. Hong Kong is an amazing city. It It is a special city in China, which is supposed to have autonomy, and it is one of the world's great financial centers. And to me, one of the most interesting aspects of the past several weeks of mass protests on the streets of Hong Kong has been the role of the business community. Finally, finally, the tycoons and financiers in Hong Kong have woken up to the danger of political encroachment from Beijing, which threatens Hong Kong's autonomy. And it's that autonomy that underpins Hong Kong's role as a financial center. And what's concentrated the minds of everybody down there is this uh, extradition bill, proposed extradition bill, under which Beijing could stretch across the border and snatch back to China for trial Hong Kong citizens, and not just Hong Kong citizens, Foreigners. foreign residents, people passing through the airport. This is horrifying to the tycoons in Hong Kong. Suddenly, they're feeling as vulnerable as their counterparts across the border, who constantly live in, 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 in fear of arbitrary arrest, of having their assets expropriated, of having their businesses steamrolled by state-owned enterprises, and so on. And it was their pressure against the administration, I think more than the street protests, that finally convinced Carrie Lam, the leader, to shelve this, this uh, piece of, of, of legislation. Andy, I was working on a show, Asian Wall Street Journal Report, and I remember the transition when the UK, when the British Empire essentially relinquished control of Hong Kong back to China. And the whole idea was, right, one country, two systems. I mean, it goes back to those roots, right? And there was an understanding that this is how it was going to operate. There was, there was exactly that understanding. But you see, the, the, the tycoons have always been, by and large, pro-Beijing and anti-democracy. Pro-Beijing, of course, because they do so much of their business across the border. Anti-democracy because, among other things, it threatens to disrupt the cozy cartels that dominates the Hong Kong uh, economy. But what they've ended up with is now is a political setup that is completely unworkable. Why is it happening now? 
I mean, it's 1997 that this happened. It's a while ago. Why are we seeing this now? Well, what we're seeing is the result of a political structure that is ill-suited to a global international financial center with a sophisticated population. Um, you know, what they ought to be doing now, of course, is, dis- is, is agreeing to dismantling this current system uh, and, and, and putting in place a system that was hon- promised to Hong Kong in the first place, right. which was autonomy mm-hmm. uh, and an, an administration constitution. Instituted, uh, through elections. Instead, what they have, the leader of Hong Kong, of course, is supposed to represent the interests, the people of Hong Kong, uh, but in fact, uh, is constituted by a committee which is composed of Beijing loyalists. And as far as Beijing is concerned, she's like any other provincial leader. She's supposed to be deferential. Right. She's mm-hmm. supposed to be obedient. She's supposed to know what Beijing wants without being told. Uh, and in this case, the irony is that she seems to have overinterpreted what Beijing may not. It's not at all clear that Beijing wanted this extradition treaty, and they certainly don't want to, don't want the street protests that this has that this has brought about. So, what what are the implications of this? Because it it feels this is a very incomplete analogy, but it feels a little bit like Brexit in the sense of businesses are ultimately going to vote with their feet and and with their money. How much danger, as it were, is Hong Kong in of? multinational companies who have long seen Hong Kong as exactly how you describe, essentially saying, you know what, I'm going to go to Singapore or I'm going to go somewhere else. Is that viable or how do you see this playing out? Well, for sure, we're already seeing some evidence of this. I mean, some families are leaving, some businesses are relocating, some business people are taking the precaution of getting their money out of Hong Kong. I think they're hoping for the best, but actually right now they're doing a lot of crisis planning. So... If China, if this is not what Beijing wants, couldn't they just automatically, very quickly provide the reassurances if they say, wait a minute, this was a misinterpretation about what we want? Am I missing something? Well, they could, but what they don't want is to set a precedent or yet, or, or have a situation where, uh, you know, they back down in the face of public protests right. and the message that that might send politically to people in the mainland. And do you get the sense that there are, I would imagine there are, a lot of conversations happening among the business elite, among the tycoons, as you say, applying pressure, whether it's to Carrie Lam, the chief executive, or or to others who might be able to bring this to some sort of a resolution that folks are happy with? Well, as I say, the, the, the resolution is a political system yeah. which is rooted in the in mm-hmm. the political will of Hong Kong people, and so you ha- so a, a administration that has internal legitimacy. Uh, I'm afraid that that is probably the last thing that the Chinese administration now, uh, this hardline administration right. under Xi Jinping, is prepared to grant. Yeah, so it's hard we- to imagine President Xi being like, yeah, that sounds good. Like, <laughs> as independent as you guys want, go for it. Yeah, sounds okay like, sounds awesome. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And I'm, I'm afraid it denied uh, a, a representation through the ballot box. I think you're going to see more and more street protests, direct action on, against, the, uh, against the government. What about the U.S. or other developed nations? What role do 
do they play in all of this? Well, it's been it's been quite helpful. Um, the uh, American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong has been quite forthright, warning of the consequences of what would happen to Hong Kong status um, if this extradition bill passed. And the administration, uh, the the White House, has threatened that if it does pass, uh, it would threaten uh, Hong Kong's special trading status, under which it has access to technologies mm-hmm. that are not given to uh, to China. Uh, and also Hong Kong is exempt, of course, from these trade tariffs. Well, and only about 30 seconds left. But all of this is happening, of course, with the backdrop of U.S.-China tensions continuing yeah. to escalate, a trade war that continues to go on. Obviously, it remains unclear what the interaction, if any, will be between President Xi and President Trump in just a couple of weeks in Osaka, right? It's certainly, this is the last thing that Xi Jinping wants now, facing a slowdown in his uh, economy, the world's second largest economy, to have trouble brewing in Hong Kong, which, let's face it, is the indispensable financial center where Chinese companies go to raise international uh, uh, capital and where the world's companies go to do their deals, secure in the knowledge that they are protected by law. We are very, very fortunate right, to have you We're just talking about Alibaba, us. right, yeah, and what no, they're doing in terms of the Hong Kong capital raise. So great to have you here. Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, longtime resident of Hong Kong, really bringing us perspective that I think we all could use to help understand where we may be going. Andy, thank you Thanks so you much. much. So illegal gold miners are facing a new foe with a little help from a NASA veteran. Let's get into this story. It'll be featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek. Tim McDonald is freelance reporter at Businessweek, and he joins us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C., along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor. Joel, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Tim, tell us a little bit about this story. Uh, Set the scene for us, if you will. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And um, yeah, so so basically, you know, Ghana, like many countries in um, West Africa, gold is a really important commodity there. And you have, of course, um, a big legitimate sector for gold mining. But kind of happening in the margins is a lot of illegal, often small scale gold mining. And that can range everything from people kind of digging holes in their backyard all the way up to kind of semi-industrialized um, mines, you know, c- coming off of, of legitimate mining companies uh, that maybe don't have the right papers or they dig outside the boundaries of their concession. So this is a big problem for the government because uh, these mines usually are avoiding taxes. They're operating without a permit. They usually have no oversight of their environmental impact, which can be quite severe in terms of uh, cutting trees down and polluting water sources and, and that sort of thing. So they've been trying to figure out ways of getting better at controlling that sector. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, one of the new approaches that they're trying now is actually using satellite images to try to identify these mines, find them, and then be able to crack down. And so, Joel, talk to us about sort of how you got to this story, because the NASA thing, I think, when Carol and I were both reading it, we went, wait, what? Yeah, so when we work with a a freelancer, it's always sort of like, wow me a little bit here, right? (laughs) And, And so the NASA element was the one that really wowed it for us, because to bring in the sort of a next level tech solution, like the framing here for me, and we often think about our world through this lens sometimes is there are big problems, right? Environmental ones. Uh, and you can wrap gold into that and gold mining into that. And what's the solution for that? And that's where the NASA part comes in because there's basically a way to look at a vast swath of area and say, actually 
some people are doing nefarious deeds here that we wouldn't actually be able to see on the ground. And so the NASA element really turns it into sort of the cool tech. Right. Well, and you need kind of cool tech, right? Because some of these mines, these illegal gold minings, uh, mining ranges from you know just some hand dug holes in the forest, and then you've got these massive and then you've operations, got the big ones, right? So, yeah. so the the known ones are are sort of the easy part. The the ones that are more difficult to spot. And that's the beauty of satellite technologies, right? So to me, it's sort of an application. Like we can look at satellite images of parking lots, which you can get economic data right. from, or you can actually put it over something like a jungle and actually end up solving good, solving world problems in a different way. And so, Tim, come on back in here. What what was the big surprise to you? Because there's there is some cognitive dissonance here. I mean, even looking at at some of the photos, you think this is incredibly high tech on the one hand, but then mm-hmm. substantially not uh, high tech on another. Yeah, well, I think the main kind of point of dissonance is um, kind of what happens after you develop a technology like this. Okay, so maybe you get your satellites to the point where, or you have some machine learning that's happening where they're able to identify these places very well. But then in terms of what happens with enforcement after that, I think that's the big hurdle that that Ghana has uh, at this point. They can find, they're getting better at finding the mines, but then, you know, the whole system, all the way from local cops up to kind of federal law enforcement agents, you know, there's a lot of corruption that's happening. There's a lot of uh, kind of lack of data, not very good communication, um, poorly resourced government regulatory agencies so in terms of what they're able to actually do with this information once they get it i think that's the challenge that they're that they're working on well that's what i was going to ask you like how dangerous is this i mean i'm thinking of this nasa engineer who's providing these pictures i mean does he kind of have to watch his back uh as he exposes these illegal mines i wouldn't say that it's really much of a threat for him i mean he doesn't live in ghana and i think right, right now this is kind of happening um i mean yeah it is happening at kind of this high level, you know, based out of offices Mm -hmm. in Accra. And most of these mining sites are, you know, deep in the in the kind of forest, you know, many hundreds of miles outside of the capital. So, I mean, I think there is a challenge where once you see something that you have a suspicion of on the satellite image, at some point you do have to send someone out into the field to go verify. And that's part of the verification process of developing the software, too, is you have to have someone go check and say, okay, this thing that looks like it might be a mine on the image. Do we have to send someone down there to see what it actually right. or is? Or is it just a shovel? Whether we're getting the image. Yeah, yeah it could be. It, is it just someone's backyard farm? Is it a naturally occurring pond of some kind that's, that has nothing to do with mining? So that's, you have to do some fact-checking there, and that's, that's kind of one of the things that they're working on right now, I think, is getting that part of it refined. Right. So, Tim, how, just real quick, can you describe how the story came to you? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've actually been kind of looking at uh, different applications for satellite imaging. I think, you know, we were mentioning some of them before, but I'm super interested in ways that these can be kind of used for development challenges, especially in West Africa. And I I had done some reporting recently on another case in Mali where a telecom company in Mali has been using satellite images to actually help uh, nomadic cattle herders find water sources so people can call into this call center and they get read out this satellite imaging that tells them where That's the incredible. sources of water are for their cows. So they can take them there. So I, I've been trying to find yeah. different ways of, of telling stories related to this, and it's super fascinating. Yeah. It's a great read. Tim McDonald is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us on the phone from D.C. Joel Weber is, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. The story, illegal gold miners face a crackdown aided by a NASA veteran. Thank you both. 
And that's where the markets may be disappointed. All right. So let's talk about that tone because that came up earlier in the show. We were talking to some of our in-house experts about that as well. Uh, take us down a level. Like what are you looking to hear? What what would suggest – what tone are you looking for to suggest that maybe they're going to be a little more – Accommodative, patient, maybe, patient. Okay, patient. Yeah. That's the word, right? I've heard it before. It's one of <laughs> Jay Powell's favorite words. <laughs> it is. So if they come out in their statement and say that the economy's doing okay, they're going to remain data dependent. That would be an indication that they can, if they see themselves affording to be patient. And that would allow them maybe to skip July and look more towards September. Okay. Which is what they sh- should potentially be doing. Like, wow. why? Well, Coming I'm just, in hard. Well, I'm thinking, right? Like, kind of wait to see. We have a lot of, um, as I love, I can't remember who used the, the term, but policy gaps, right? So whether it's U.S.-China trade, whether it's U.S.-Mexico trade, like there's a lot of things that could be resolved that would maybe clean up a lot of the mess that's out there in the financial markets right now. So, you know, maybe it is wise for the Fed to be patient and wait to see what happens. That's right, because we really don't have such a high level of rates from which to start cutting in the first place. Right. And a recession it, likely when we need lurking it, right? exactly okay. around the corner, maybe late next year, early 2021. So you want to have those rate cuts available. All right. So what's an investor to do amid all of this? keeping in mind what's going on with the Fed specifically, but also with the other things we have going on in the background, whether it's trade, whether it is, you know, sort of trade with China, whether it's trade with Mexico, whether it's the U.S. consumer. What's your advice? Look, the economy is solid, but earnings growth isn't great. So our S&P target for year end, 2850. Now that we're a little bit above that, investors need to be rebalancing. It's blocking and tackling for investing. You take a little bit of money off the top, pick an investment that's done well, liquidate part of it, take the cash, put it aside, call it dry powder, and you wait for this market to pull back. We were close at the end of May, down 6.6%, and then the Fed stepped in at the beginning of June and took our opportunity away. But we're looking for that kind of opportunity to put money back to work. So take money off the top from a name like a Facebook that's up 44% this year? We still like tech, but I'll tell you what, there are a lot of investors so who have been ta- up. So you wouldn't sell some of that? No, not necessarily, but looking, looking first in places that we think have less fundamental support, like utility and REITs. Oh. And a lot of people have piled in there looking for yield, I know, I and know. now you've got some high prices, some pretty rich valuations there. Look there first. And so where else are you looking, or where else are you staying put? Well, we would be looking to take money, as I said, out of REITs and utilities, maybe yeah. out of 
communication services, that new S&P right. sector that they have, and materials. We'd be looking to recycle that money maybe back into some of the ones we like. Tech we mentioned, industrials we like, financials. Energy here looks like an interesting value play for us and consumer discretionary. You might also go overseas. You know, If you're overweight in Europe, I don't know anyone who is, but if you were, you could take some money out of there or even in small caps here at home or underweight those. Well, so Paul, what about something like you say tech you like, and I think about the semi-area, the socks is way off uh, the high that we saw back in late April. I mean, is that a name that you would be putting more money towards? I mean, it got, they got beat up too last week. There's a difference sort of between the, the, the chip makers, the kind of the more components pieces, let's call them, uh, and the rest of uh, Infotech. The, the, the more related you are to the components, the more likely you are to be affected by U.S.-China trade. If we get a deal there, then you might have an opportunity. So I read that as a no for now. No for now, but lots of other names there look interesting to us. Talk to me about alternatives because we have a lot of people mm-hmm. sort of coming through here. We talk a lot about it. You know, we were talking earlier about you know Goldman Sachs sort of consolidating, doubling down on a lot of its private market type activities, raising more capital from their own uh, from their own clients to to put that to work. How should people be thinking about alternatives and which ones are appealing here? Right now, we like those strategies that have the ability to go short a mm. market. So whether it's in stocks, you, let's say you like the you want to go in the auto industry, I'm going to buy X and I'm going to short Y. That has the interesting feature that it could actually reduce the volatility of your portfolio if you're right in those two directional picks and increase the return. So, so hedge funds. Sounds like you're talking about hedge funds here. I don't hear anyone saying good things about hedge funds these days, (laughs) And private capital for those qualified investors. uh, Those can give you those uh, private debt funds uh, and healthcare could give you some non-correlated exposure to the indices. Where don't you want to be? You mentioned taking some money off the table for REITs and some of those. REITs utilities. Right, uh, interest rate exposure. And and just because they've run up or what's going on Because they've run up on account of low rates, but their fundamentals aren't really strong, this late in the cycle what's the what's the one thing that you think we're not planning for as investors the future well what does that mean (laughs) what does that mean there are so many people who come to me all the time and say what stock should i get in today and then they want to get out in in a couple of weeks they want to day trade look if you want to make money in the stock market you have long-term goals People still want to day trade after what happened people do they 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 definitely I, i had an uncle who would have three televisions on or all around the house watching financial media drove my aunt crazy he was obsessed with the news and people will call us and say i heard this story or that story should i get out of the market They're always with one foot out of the batter's box, always ready to get out and then try to get back in again later. Historically, that doesn't work. You know, a guy from St. Louis, he's got to make a baseball reference. (laughs) Should have made a hockey reference. (laughs) Otherwise, are you starting to think about the political climate, too, and what it means for the financial markets? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's probably off the radar screen. The domestic political climate is off the radar screen. We're so inured to it, I guess. Uh, But starting with the debt ceiling debate, probably this fall, will give you a a, a clue, a show about how what we should expect from the political scene as we get into 2020. Uh, if that gets to be very contentious, look out, 2020 could be a volatile year from the political side. 
feels like it's going to be. That's for sure. All right. (laughs) Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy for Wells Fargo Investment Institute, normally out in St. Louis. Happy to have him here in New York today. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 